Well, I would like to begin uh, from an excerpt from a little book called Delight. We had a wonderful conference here this weekend that spoke a lot about the significance of delight. This is from J.B. Priestley. I can remember as if it happened last week, more than half a century ago, when I must have been about four, and on a fine summer morning, I would sit in a field adjoining the house. What gave me delight then was a mysterious notion, for which I could certainly not have found words, of a treasure. It was waiting for me either in the earth just below the buttercups and daisies or in the golden air. I had formed no idea of what this treasure would consist of, and nobody had ever talked to me about it. But morning after morning would be radiant with its promise. Somewhere not far out of reach, it was waiting for me, and at any moment I might roll over and put a hand on it. I suspect now that the treasure was earth itself, and the light and warmth of the sunbeams. Yet sometimes I fancy that I have been searching for it ever since. This story may resonate with you, not necessarily because you, like J.B. Priestley, have imagined a thing as specific as a hidden treasure near at hand, but because since your childhood, you have experienced a longing, a sort of restless ache for something which you have not quite found, for which you have searched in various places. You may have thought you found it in a wonderful relationship or in success professionally or in the perfectly chiseled cut of your well-toned abdominals. But then after a short time and a couple of milkshakes, you realize that wasn't it. You may find that you continue to search to satisfy this longing in ways that you actually know won't. By eating things you aren't hungry for, or buying things you don't need, or getting too physically intimate with people you have no intention of marrying. You are not alone. It is the human condition to be restless, to long and search for something to assuage that fire, that desire. Augustine identifies the object of this longing that we have as God. You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Augustine would say to Priestley that the treasure was not the earth itself, as lovely and environmentally friendly as that sort of sounds. Augustine would say the treasure is God, and what we seek is a close relationship with him, and until we give ourselves over to that, we will always be aching. Now, if we were to all close our eyes and try to imagine God, who is the true object of our desire, well, we probably would envision different stuff. Some of you might see a sort of loving grandfather figure, and some perhaps the face of Jesus, and some maybe, well, nothing, because God is spirit after all. 
And some of you might see a rather disappointed or angry deity, perhaps holding a lightning bolt over a smoldering heap of ashes, which would actually more likely be Zeus than our Heavenly Father. But whatever that image is, I want us this morning to look closely at a few verses from our gospel reading that speak to God's actual character in an unusual way. Our gospel reading from Matthew is from the Sermon on the Mount. The section we read is technically called a series of antitheses. You have heard that it was said, but what I tell you is, this was a traditional rabbinic rhetorical style of sharpening the Torah. Je Jesus didn't make this up. He was well in line with his Jewish tradition here. He's expanding on the implications of the Ten Commandments that they received from Moses. What does it look like to actually fulfill these commands, not just in a surface way, as in, what is the least I can do and still be in compliance, versus fulfilling it in a deep way of the heart? I want to spend time thinking about what Jesus says about murder and anger not just for what it means about our hearts and our behavior, but because of what it tells us about God's heart and God's behavior. Because God reveals his own character in his commandments to us. His truthfulness is revealed in his command not to bear false witness. God isn't going to ask us to do something he doesn't do. His faithfulness is revealed in his command not to commit adultery. God isn't going to ask us something he doesn't do. And his patience is revealed in his command not to murder. It's this one about murder that comes up first in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But what I say to you is this, that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. We're going to look at this teaching of Jesus with two objects in view. One is, what does it tell us about God? And one is, what does it tell us about us? So let's start with us. What does it mean about us that Jesus is so concerned about an insult? Why is that a big deal? Why can't we say without remorse, so-and-so is such a fool? Or making a cutting joke that is less about having fun and more about exacting a sting. Why are the stakes so high around anger? We feel very entitled to be seething with anger these days. It almost seems a virtue, a way of showing that we are woke and compassionate. Ronald Rollheiser says in his marvelous book, Holy Longing, that both as liberals and conservatives, we can easily rationalize our causes as so urgent and our wounds so deep and our world so bad 
that in our situation, anger and bitterness are justified. But Jesus says that is not so. It is important here to distinguish between the emotion anger, which happens to us in a flash, and exists as a signal that something has opposed our will, either for good reason or for ill reason. And it's perfectly useful emotion in that regard. It alerts us, kind of like pain, that signals it's time to take our finger off the hot plate. The feeling of anger happens. And then we need to sort out what we do with that. How are we going to react? There are various things we may need to do with that feeling. We might need to have a direct conversation in private with a person. We may, in some cases, when the person refuses to listen, invite somebody else to go to that person with us. Jesus actually recommends that in another passage. Or we may just need to find a fabulous therapist. But there is one thing that we must not do, which is let that feeling fuel thoughts and actions that are hostile. Or worse, allow that anger to flower into contempt. Why? Because God has put such a high value on the life of every human being that we dare not insult one another. And as any observer of the human condition can attest, permitting anger to take up residence in our spirit is corrosive to us. Howard Thurman, who uh, of course speaks so elegantly uh, in in terms of racism and violence, uh, says this, if a man knows precisely what he can do to you or what epithet he can curl against you in order to make you lose your temper, your equilibrium, then he can always keep you under subjection. Relenting to anger makes us subjects. Instead, we're to exhibit a restraint and patience that is terribly demanding and deeply restorative and, in fact, the true foundation of peace. Patience is the foundation of peace. Patience with ourselves, patience with others, patience with Nashville traffic. Jesus adds on to the negative command, don't lash out in anger, a positive command that we must be quick to reconcile. He says, even if we're in the middle of bringing a gift to the altar and realize we need to make peace with someone, the restoration of the relationship is the more important thing. Okay, the question is, are half of you going to leave after the peace? Don't worry, you can just text the person and receive communion. For the people of God, knowing our heart and restraining our anger is paramount. So what does this mean about God? What can we deduce about the character of God that his son Jesus would make this point about the importance of restraining our anger? There's a narrative out there that presents our all-powerful God ultimately as a sort of cosmic Rambo, a God hero who sets things to rights 
at the last day through violence. Violence being the last card that God plays to restore the earth. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing as the wrath of God. Kind of hard to read the Bible and not see that that is so. But don't let's make the mistake of confusing the wrath of God for Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator. We cannot separate the wrath of God from what we see in Jesus. Jesus, his son, would make this point about the importance of restraining our anger in the power of the cross, which was not in the violence inflicted on Jesus. It is in Jesus, willingly, patiently, hanging on it for us. He had the option to leave. That is the power. Divine patience even unto death. So for those of us who envision God as the one holding a lightning bolt over a smoldering heap of ashes, I invite us all to reconsider. God has revealed his character through his law and most especially through his son. God is patient and God is kind. He is that treasure that awaits us. He is the proper subject of all our most glorious words, like shimmering majesty. He is properly sung to in glorious chords of angelic choirs. And human ones as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. But he is also ready to sit down beside you and listen most patiently to you recount the intricacies of your latest dental appointment. In short, he is worthy of our praise and our trust. He is our treasure. <laughs>